At the height of prohibition, a small tenement in the East Village had a well-known secret. A speakeasy. The little hangout on St. Mark's Place in Manhattan was the hippest place around to get some illicit alcohol. For everyone. And uh, so it was kind of like the downtown uh, uh, store club. Uh, the, um, in the hierarchy of, of the places, the, the real economic elite went to the store club. The political elite, the mayor, for example, would go to the 21 club. Uh, the city council would come here. Uh, the way you found speakeasies during Prohibition was through hotel uh, concierge and, the, uh, and cab drivers. And so, uh, although the jazz club had a number of different names, it was always known as Scheib's Place. Scheib's Place was owned by gangster Walter Scheib, a toolmaker with well-known connections to the mob. But Scheib was as much of a front as the theater upstairs. It was his boss, Frank Hoffman, who was really in charge of the place. When Hoffman disappeared, what he left behind were some shocking secrets. He also knew that hidden in the basement behind tons of garbage, restaurant stoves, refrigerators, were two safes from Prohibition that contained the tax money on uh, 13 years of making a million a week. This is the story of a speakeasy with more than the average secrets and how a local family got pulled into a murder mystery. This is Mafia Inside the Safes. St. Mark's Place in New York City was the epicenter of the punk rock scene in the 1980s. Today, its vintage shops and small theaters stand as a faded reminder of that era. But one building at 7880 St. Mark's is a relic of a very different era. Uh, Lorcan Otway, the uh, curator and uh, owner of the Museum of the American Gangster, uh, at historic 80 St. Mark's Place, which is comprised of Theater 80, uh, William Barnacle Tavern, and the Museum of the American Gangster. The building itself is also a piece of gangster history. The museum, part of the building, was, in, at the time that the speakeasy was here, was a house of prostitution. In 1922, Prohibition was in full swing. Just two years earlier, the United States government had outlawed the sale and distribution of alcohol. Bars and manufacturers closed down. But decreased supply did not mean decreased demand. Almost immediately, underground clubs sprung up with illegally imported alcohol for sale, known as speakeasies. It had uh, a, one of the largest bars in New York at the time. The, the bar that you see today is half the original bar. We cut the bar in half to put a backstage in the theater. So if you imagine that wonderful, great, long uh, Cuban mahogany bar doubled as a horseshoe, and the um, entire footprint of the building, uh, where the backyard is, was enclosed as the dance floor. So you would look across the, the dance floor and dining room to a small stage Bootleggers who would obtain the illegal alcohol were mostly gangsters. The most notorious was Al Capone. A lesser-known bootlegger was Frank Hoffman, a Bavarian who was friends with Capone. 
1922, he bought the building, then a tenement and brothel with the intention of turning it into a money-making business. But Hoffman was no fool. He wanted his name nowhere near an illegal establishment. And so he hired Walter Scheib to take ownership of the building and of the bar. He uh, basically was uh, made for the hospitality business within organized crime. Uh, he was personable but extraordinarily hard, tough, uh, something between businessman and gangster. Either he found Hoffman or Hoffman found him. I suppose that he began to uh, get interested in and learn the, uh, the restaurant business through his older brother, who, again, wasn't tough enough to make that transition into the illegal economy. And so, uh, although the jazz club had a number of different names, it was always known as Scheib's Place. Scheib acted as the face of the bar, making friends, keeping the place supplied with alcohol, and handling the business end, while Hoffman kept an office in the basement. For a decade, Hoffman and Scheib ran the illicit business, although it was never truly under the radar. Scheib's place became an attraction for local artists, the upper crust, and for politicians. And uh, so it was kind of like the downtown uh, uh, store club. Uh, in the hierarchy of, of the places, the, the real economic elite went to the store club. The political elite, the mayor, for example, would go to the 21 club. Uh, the city council would come here. Everybody was sure that Scheib was the head of the gang that ran this the speakeasy here, that it was completely shy. Even the NYPD was involved in meeting the demand for booze. The alcohol would be brought in from tunnels built under the streets, and it was helped along the way by the police. The alcohol that was coming in from Rum Row, uh, miles off the coast of Long Island, would be uh, landed on beaches in Long Island where they would pick up a uh, NYPD motorcycle escort. We know this because uh, Frank Hoffman's gang was paying $3 a case to the police um, as it came out in court records at one point. City police were profiting uh, remarkably by prohibition. And they weren't the only ones profiting. Speakeasies were a lucrative business. And when the club was making a lot of money, it meant the authorities were as well. What they didn't pay in taxes, they paid in bribes. And so for every six bottles sold in here, the police were making $3. Now, what did that represent financially? Uh, the club here was grossing a million dollars a week, um, paying three quarters of that out in bribes. Shibes' place stayed open and lively until well after the prohibition. When the law was repealed in 1933, the bar continued as a now legitimate establishment or at least legitimate as far as the alcohol was concerned. In order that this place remain hidden, there was a network of smuggling tunnels coming out from our basement. Organized crime was an extraordinarily successful parasite because they realized that there was a gap in um, where there needed to be a uh, balancing uh, fulcrum between uh, the American tradition of moral certainty on one side, the thou shalt not laws, 
and the enculturation to liberty. Um, the, wait a minute, you can't outlaw that. That's, that's a basic human right. Scheib was still making a lot of money off the business. Hoffman, however, was nowhere to be found. According to reports, he had gone on a trip to Bavaria and had never come back. But he had left something behind in his office and something in the basement that was the first clue that the bar was more than it seemed. Beneath the building were a series of tunnels, but while building them, Hoffman had taken a shortcut or two, making the whole building potentially dangerous. um, Hoffman would break through the walls of basements to join the uh, basements together into a network of tunnels, but wouldn't put lintels in. He wouldn't put steel beams to hold up the rest of the building. Hoffman had also taken care in making the speakeasy inaccessible from the front. My belief is that Hoffman never came in through the um, the ground floor uh, openings, which you the the building was completely sealed off from First Avenue on the front on the first floor. Uh, if you came in through any of the entrances. You had to go up to the uh, the buildings above. You could not get into the club. Uh, the windows were covered with steel plates. The uh, the doors were bricked up. So you came in through an alleyway through a butcher shop on First Avenue. But Hoffman, I believe, probably always came in through the tunnels. It made sense at the time of prohibition. But Hoffman had taken extra precaution to keep his assets away from the feds. Hoffman... In fact, we discovered that uh, Hoffman's bunker and office uh, has bomb triggers. Beneath the crowded bar, tenement apartments, and brothel sat bomb triggers, armed and ready at Hoffman's whim to take down the entire building and its occupants. If the feds had gotten through the outer defenses and were raiding the, um, uh, the building, he and his millions of dollars would have gotten out through the tunnels, at which point they would have armed the bomb, and if the feds tried to follow him, the building would have come down. But what was under the building that Hoffman so desperately wanted to protect at all costs? In 1956, after three decades of success, Scheib put the building up for sale. He was not, however, looking to sell to just anyone. The ideal buyer would be someone who couldn't afford to pay off the mortgage because Scheib wanted to keep an eye and legal ownership of something in the basement. Walter put the building up for sale because he hadn't seen his boss since 1945. So he didn't know whether the boss was alive or dead. He also knew that hidden in the basement behind tons of garbage restaurant stoves, refrigerators, were two safes from Prohibition that contained the tax money on uh, 13 years of making a million a week. Hoffman had left behind two large iron safes. They're your classic 1920s, uh, oh, I'd say they're about maybe four foot square, and uh, on wheels, there'd be the kind of thing that you'd see um, in uh, the uh, offices for businessmen at the time. 
To Scheib, what was inside was not a mystery. He believed that Hoffman had hidden away the last few years of tax money, upwards of $12 million. But if someone else bought the building outright, they would legally own the vaults and its contents. Scheib had a lucky break. He found everything he wanted in a buyer in a young actor named Howard Otway. Howard was looking to build a theater, and 7880 St. Mark's seemed the perfect location to him. Scheib agreed to offer him a mortgage, and also unwittingly made him into a fall guy. Howard was Lorcan's father. Everyone who showed up with the money to buy the building, he told them he changed his mind. My dad showed up, and he was exactly, in 1964, what he'd been waiting for, somebody who would lose the building back from to him, so that if he opened the safes and Hoffman ever showed up again, he could blame my dad. And he figured that dad would go bankrupt long before he got to cleaning out the basement because he'd be building the theater. Howard began the excavation, obtaining the legal paperwork from the city, and Scheib kept a close eye on the project. Scheib, after that, after he loaned him the money, uh, he was constantly dropping by to make uh, to see how the how the uh, the construction was going and to visit his mother upstairs. Scheib's mother lived in the apartments above the bar, a ready excuse to be in the building at unexpected times. But part of the renovation included clearing out the trash in the basement, and so the safes were soon discovered. They they were really. Um in their style very much the safe of, from the turn of the century to the 1920s. So as soon as Dad saw them, he realized that they were from Prohibition and he wanted to open them. Howard was intrigued, but he was not stupid. He realized Scheib had obvious gangster ties. At this point, people in the neighborhood had uh, begun telling us stories about Scheib and how mobbed up he was. And Howard had perhaps also realized why Scheib had sold the building to him over anyone else. Uh, Walter Scheib had my dad pegged perfectly. Um, just as Scheib predicted, my dad completely went bankrupt and went into hiding for about six months because he was sure that Walter was going to come and break his legs for falling behind in the payments. Um, Scheib basically just wrote off the debt, at least temporarily, and during that period, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown opened, and we were able to pay off the mortgage. Had we not paid off the mortgage, um, or had we paid off the mortgage uh, without finding the money, that would have been a real problem for us. Howard, as Scheib had predicted, didn't want to cross the gangster by opening the safes himself. So he called Scheib to open them. When we found the safe uh, and did the exact right thing, in having Scheib come in and open the safe himself, because even though at this point it would have been our money, he calls Walter up and he says, I'm too curious to leave these safes closed, but I'm too cautious to open them without you. One night in the late 1960s, Nine-year-old Lorcan, his father, gangster Walter Scheib, and a safecracker stood in the dank basement of 7880 St. Mark's Place. Scheib was sure that the two large safes in front of him held $12 million in dirty money. 
Scheib had told Howard Otway that the safes were his, but they really belonged to his boss, Frank Hoffman, who had not been seen in decades. But Scheib was ready to move on, and if Hoffman came back, he could easily blame Howard for opening the safes. The safe cracker started on the first safe. Lorcan says it was slow work. The fellow works the uh, cylinders on the first safe. After hours, we finally get it open, and it's a complete Geraldo Rivera moment. It was just like when Rivera opened the legendary safe of Al Capone on live TV. It was supposed to be full of money, but it was completely empty. Scheib wasn't discouraged. There was still a second safe. But the fact that the safe was empty wasn't meaningless. Scheib is kind of considering whether or not he now knows that Hoffman has been back for the money. So not telling us, of course, that that's what he knows. Scheib quietly wondered if Hoffman had come back and taken the money. But when? And how? Unknown to all of them, the second safe would hold those answers. If the money was indeed gone, Scheib didn't want to waste more hours safe-cracking. For the second safe, he decided to use a faster method and peel back the bottom. But this time, it wasn't empty. Instead, a strong smell of rot and decay almost knocked them back. This back, this extraordinarily rancid, wretched, ammonia-like smell. The second safe contained what looked like a pile of garbage. It was full of debris and newspapers, and the leftovers of three clam dinners. Thirty years of um, the um, remains of this clam dinner and the wet beer bottles mildewing in the safe. The Otways were momentarily confused. Was this another dead end? But then Shai began to unwrap the newspapers. And uh, Shai begins pulling um, packets of newspaper-wrapped $100 bills out of the safe. It's $2 million in gold certificates. And um, doesn't give Dad a dime, but uh, uh, off he goes. Howard, still afraid of the gangster, didn't stop him from taking all the cash. With the money stowed away in a duffel bag, Scheib left the building. In the following days, he would move his mother down to Florida and later open the Promenade Hotel. The family never saw him again. And while the story was over for Scheib, he had left behind the rest of the safe's contents and yet another mystery to be solved. What Dad and I remembered profoundly was Scheib shoving the money into a duffel bag and leaving with it what um, hadn't really been impressed upon us was him throwing the wrappings back into the hole in the bottom of the safe. And as a result, we never looked into that safe again in this corner of the basement and discovered that there was more than just the, uh, the wrappings. There was the garbage from that night. The Otways didn't touch the leftover contents of the safe for years. But one night, a now-adult Lorcan and his wife decided to take a look. The first clue that things were not as they seemed? The newspapers. The last time Scheib had seen Hoffman was 1933. The uh, 
the wrapping say November 7th, 1945. So we begin to take everything out of the safe and we find the contents of three people's pockets. We find um, a meal that three people had together. We find a photograph of a young uh, nightclub singer. The contents of the safe unfolded into a story. Hoffman had indeed come back in 1945, and he had two other people with him, one of which was likely the nightclub singer in the photo. Three people had eaten a clam dinner together in the basement and put their trash in the safe. So they intended to come back uh, and didn't want people to know they were there. But Hoffman and whoever he was with hadn't come back. What exactly had happened? Lorcan thought one thing was for sure. Yes, Hoffman came back after World War II and um, was murdered by... What we were looking for was a member of the gang that uh, would have... uh, He would have trusted, but that he shouldn't have trusted. Without Scheib noticing, Hoffman had come back for the money but had been murdered before he could come back a second time. Was Scheib somehow involved? Was it gang-related or law-related? My dad wrote an autobiography that was never published, and one of the chapters begins with um, the lead-up to the story of the finding the money in the safe. And suddenly, the chapter ends without going on at all. The story is just kind of, there's no development of this this idea of the money and I realized that my dad and Walter died the same year and uh, had certainly lost touch by then but um, just as my caution when I suddenly realized oh wait a minute these this group of people are still alive um, my dad probably thought oh wait a minute if I talk about Scheib finding this money and he's still alive he's going to come and break my knees or kill me the details remain a mystery for now Just as the museum exists as a piece of history, with living people who remember it, it is believed that someone out there is also a part of this history and knows the whole story, which would be great or terrible. And so we were um, researching a murder that would have had no implications on our lives. And then at one point, I write to an organization that Hoffman was involved in uh, during the war. I sent off an email, and suddenly I got this cold chill, and I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is another generation that still, people are still alive. And I could just imagine a knock at the door in the middle of the night and uh, some 80-year-old fellow saying, oh, you know, so you're interested in where Hoffman's buried. You know, get in the car, I'll show you. (laughs) And my... My greatest uh, uh, joy would be to find that some of the more uncomfortable parts of the story, somebody somebody will say, uh, oh, I knew this person, and this is actually what happened. In the next episode, before Las Vegas, before Atlantic City, a New York gangster was looking to open a gambling establishment, and he had connections. 
he was tightly associated with Tammany Hall. You know, they were the power brokers that ran New York City, and Morrissey himself became quite affiliated with them. So he was essentially an enforcer with the Dead Rabbits and the other against the other gangs. And if there were issues that Tammany Hall needed settled, they sent Morrissey and his people out to settle it. But space was scarce in the big city. And so he followed the crowd to a small town upstate where the law would look the other way. And that was really uh, that was really the heyday of the gambling. I mean, there were there were dozens of places you can you could gamble, but Richard Canfield really put Saratoga on the map to the extent that people would call it the Monte Carlo of America. It was the most fabulous, you know, elegant gambling place in all of America. This has been an Audio Boom original production, hosted by me, Fleet Cooper. It is produced by Rachel Jacobs, Casey Georgie, Blair Payton, and Karen Bevan. And the executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Thanks to Purple for sponsoring this episode. Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And if you've got some time, give us a review.